Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. And hello, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, June 16, 2016, How Time Flies. Tonight, we have California trial lawyer Stephen Lopez, who was the victorious attorney in, I just learned how to pronounce it, the Sierra case in California, and he'll give us his views on that and on the application of some other decisions that are related to that. Uh, we may end up talking about Ivanova, Keshgar, Mendoza, Boyce, Geiske, etc. California seems to be taking the lead for the country, even as trial judges try to grapple with their own resistance to what they consider to be technicalities and defenses raised by homeowners. Those technicalities, it turns out, are quite meaningful as to whether or not the homeowner has been confronted by somebody that he owes money to or um, uh, where the uh, party who is seeking to enforce is even representing somebody that the homeowner owes money to. In May, the California Court of Appeals for the 4th Appellate District issued an opinion that allows a homeowner to sue for wrongful foreclosure when the foreclosure is instituted by a non-party and where the assignment is defective. The case in which Mr. Lopez uh, uh, was uh, was arguing is Sierrata versus U.S. Bank, N.A. Sierrata reversed the trial court, which had sustained, as usual, the defendant's demurrer, which is the equivalent to a motion to dismiss, without leave to amend the complaint. So what the trial court basically did was say, we don't care if the assignment is void, we're enforcing it anyway. Tonight, we have the trial lawyer who argued that case and won on appeal. This case, Sierrata, is important for a variety of reasons. It makes note of a number of things that are important in foreclosure defense. And it starts, I think a bandwagon of decisions across the country as courts are forced back to basic principles of law that have been ignored for at least 10 years. Uh, Tomorrow, by the way, look for my article on the difference between possessors of notes, holders, and how someone other than the party who's named as payee can enforce notes. Seems that a, a... refresher course is necessary for a lot of people and it should be argued properly 
I'm broadcasting live from Broward County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lives blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lives, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm, with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations from you to the Living Lives blog. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 202-838-6345. Or you can call the uh, 954-495-9867 and pledge whatever you think you can afford. We are discontinuing the West Coast number 520-405-1688, probably effective tomorrow. Uh, because we don't need it, and we're uh, we're using uh, among other things Google Voice, and that's what the two zero two eight three eight six three four five, which spells the last four digits, spell out my name, Neil. If this show has value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Southern California attorney Stephen Lopez is a 1986 graduate of California Western School of Law. He is, as I have repeatedly said already, a trial lawyer. There's a difference between a trial lawyer and people who do deals or who attempt to be trial lawyers without much experience. He has more than 28 years of legal experience, more than 40 jury trials, and hundreds of bench trials on a wide range of issues, including personal injury, real estate, debtor and creditor cases, and business transactions. His office is located in San Diego, California, at 600 B Street, Suite 2230, and his telephone number is 858-682-9666. Stephen, welcome to the show. Good afternoon or good evening for those on the East Coast. Right. Well, we are on the East Coast, and I understand that the uh, temperatures are soaring out west, uh, 119 expected in Phoenix. Yeah, not quite in San Diego. San Diego is better. I understand that. Steve, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into foreclosure defense? Well, uh, I mean, I've I've been working with real estate matters and foreclosures uh, since I first started practicing uh, back in 1986. I actually worked for a firm back in 1986 that uh, represented a lender back then who came up with the brilliant idea of securitizing notes, uh, and it was something that was new and was intimately involved in how they set that up and how they ended up messing it up. And that lender, which was a local lender out here in San Diego, ended up going under. Um, Fast forward to uh, the mortgage crisis beginning in 2008. uh, I started representing homeowners uh, primarily in relation to wrongful foreclosures. And I've probably seen every issue that you can see in these cases. It sure sounds like you have, and it's interesting that, like me, you've uh, been on both sides of foreclosures, and that gives you a, a greater insight. But what I found uh, most interesting in what you just said is that you have some experience with the actual securitization process as it was supposed to be, and like you said, how they messed it up. Correct. Um, so let's 
plunge in. Well, before we do that, let me ask you this. How do you see the general climate in California now in terms of foreclosure defense? Uh, what is the attitude from the bench, and what do you think the future holds in terms of uh, our return, as I just said, uh, to basic principles of law? Well, you know, it, it, it's, an inter, it's been an interesting metamorphosis in San Diego and, and, and Southern California, all the courts, in fact. Um, when we first started with these cases, the courts were willing to listen to us, but slowly and surely as they became inundated with these cases, um, they started coming up with every single excuse they could for why they shouldn't allow these cases to proceed. Um, uh uh, as many people would know most recently in the Ivanova decision out here in the California Supreme Court, um, uh, came out with a very good decision that says that, uh, yes, indeed, homeowners do have the standing to challenge a wrongful foreclosure. Um, for for many years now, courts have been throwing those cases out, although I have had some success over the years with some judges um, accepting uh, the contrary argument. Um, but uh, Given the Sierrata case, it's a complete game changer uh, in California, at least for post-foreclosure cases. And and California is a uh, non-judicial state, so there is a differentiation there that that needs to be taken into account. And um, once they foreclose, there is no question now that, one, the homeowner has a right to challenge the party's right to have foreclosed, And two, if they, in fact, are not the holder of the note and beneficiary of the deed of trust, that foreclosure sale is void. Um, The other thing that the Sierrata case has done is made it clear that there's no obligation to tender any money to anybody so long as you are disputing um, the validity of the sale itself and the idea that the person claiming to hold the note um, uh, uh, is entitled to any payment. And that's pretty important. Uh, because obviously most homeowners don't have the money to tender. Um, uh, uh, thirdly, one of the big issues has always been prejudice, whether or not you're prejudiced by the fact that somebody uh, with no right to foreclose is foreclosing, and the court made it clear that, of course, the prejudice is that someone with no right to take your home took your home. Uh, it, it, it seems like simple ideas. Um, in fact, there was a case out of the uh, same court uh, that's more than 10 years old by a very well-respected judge now who's retired. Uh, it's a, called the Dimmick case, and more than 10 years ago they ruled that way, but long more than probably 20 years ago. And, and But when this crisis hit, they didn't want to go that way. They didn't like that idea anymore. They wanted to stop homeowners from protecting themselves. Why do you think they wanted to stop homeowners from protecting themselves? Well, I, I you know, I, I I hear from many clients they think that there's some sort of a conspiracy between the courts and the banks, or that they've gotten together. And, and you know, as an attorney, I like to believe that. That's not the way it is. But I think what the reality was is, and I said this uh, with my former partner when we first had these cases and started handling these cases, um, there is no way that the courts are going to let this happen only because if they do, the system is going to be turned upside down. And I think that that's, that's true, that had they done it, particularly in California, given the way that uh, – 
they were handling the securitization, given the way that they were recording um, assignments or not recording assignments, uh, uh, they would have had very serious problems. Every single non-judicial foreclosure case would have become a litigation matter. And I think the courts made an internal decision unrelated to speaking with any one of the lenders, basically saying, we can't let that happen. And, and so we're going to put a stop to that. Um, and unfortunately, it's a long process to get one of these cases before the Supreme Court, who isn't so worried about those issues. They're not worried about their dockets or how many cases they have, like like the courts of appeals and the trial courts are. Um, Do you think so, that the judges were affected at all by the message from Washington that if the entire securitization system was called into question or worse, uh, shown to have been a fraudulent scheme that didn't actually exist or something like that, that the entire financial system would collapse and that they were saving the country? I, I really do think they thought that. Whether they thought that you know, initially, uh, as their reasoning, but I, I really think that that was a big reason why they were doing what they were doing. And I think they think that the crisis is over now, or at least partially over, and so now they can actually apply the law. Uh, when I first started doing these cases, we were doing quite a few TILA rescissions back in the early days, and of course, the, the, the issue was, uh, can you just rescind your loan back then? And I can't count the number of clients that validly rescinded their loan, and how many years did it take the U.S. Supreme Court to say, well, yes, that was a valid rescission back then, and, um, you know, here we are 10 years later, they finally say, well, all those rescissions were valid. Um, but sorry, everybody, you're all barred by race judicata now because we told you previously they weren't. Um, and, and I think it's the same situation. It's because they feel the crisis is pretty much over that they can now actually apply the law properly. So is it your opinion that even though the rescission was effective and the note and mortgage were rendered void, that somehow or other the note and mortgage got resurrected because of incorrect or faulty reasoning? Well, I, I, it, it's an it's an interesting argument, um, and I have raised the contrary argument um, in quite a few cases recently since we we came out with the Supreme Court decision. And what I'm running up against is most of these poor people, they already litigated this issue, and at least here in California, what the courts are saying. You already litigated the issue of whether or not they had the right to foreclose, and you yourself lost on that issue. Um, and it doesn't matter that we were wrong on the law. Uh, I, I think that's probably a state-to-state -state application. I think it's still still an issue that a court of appeals should address. I think it's an improper application of res judicata or collateral estoppel here in California. But that's what the trial courts are doing out here. And um, I haven't had a case go to the Court of Appeal yet on that issue. Um, I'd like to have one go, but we haven't had one yet. That's The client's been willing to go that far. Right. So procedurally, because the client lost and did not appeal, uh, that was the end of the case, and they're afraid that uh, uh, under the doctrine of finality, 
They don't want millions of foreclosures to be reopened uh, as a result of the Jesenowski decision. Is that what you're saying? Uh, that's exactly what I'm saying. They do not. They do not want all these cases to be reopened just because of Jesenowski. And you know, Jesenowski doesn't say whether or not it's retroactive. I think it's pretty clear it is in the sense that what the court is saying is you courts were wrong all along. Um, but in terms of res judicata and collateral estoppel, which are the doctrines that would say it's a final judgment in your case. Um, Uh, the courts out here so far have not been very receptive to us. But using the the reasoning in Ivanova and Chirata and others, if the note and mortgage were void, like in these cases they're talking about the assignment being void, how can you actually say that the sale was not void? I don't think you can. I think the sale was void. So, uh, you know, in in those instances where you have a valid rescission and and the the note and deed, that should likewise mean that you cannot have a valid sale. Uh, The the Ivanova decision has made it clear that uh, in California, the right to foreclose is purely contractual, and it's only so long as that contract exists, the note and the deed of trust. Um, and they do not have any right to foreclose. As I said, I, I, I'm pretty clear on it. I think it's very simple. And I don't see how, from an argument standpoint, you make a sale that wasn't void or was void, unvoid. In other words, the sale was void. Once it's void, it's void. And, and you can't fix that by saying, well, some court held otherwise, in my opinion. I agree with you. I agree with you. I don't see the logic. Which brings me to my next question, uh, having briefed and argued uh, the Sierrata decision. There's this artificial distinction that seems to be emerging as a result of Ivanova um, and Sierrata. You've got Ivanova saying this only applies after foreclosure is complete, more or less saying the cause of action for wrongful foreclosure arises only when the foreclosure is complete. I get that. But if the reasoning behind the uh, definite holding and even over is that a void assignment is a nullity and therefore they had no right to foreclose and, of course, in Ivanova, uh, just like in Sierra, they, they said that uh, damages are essentially presumed if you foreclose on, on, on somebody's home and you had no right to do it. So the question I have is similar to the last one I just asked you, which is if a void assignment is per se actionable after the foreclosure, then A, why wouldn't it be an appropriate basis to challenge a foreclosure, and B, why wouldn't it be a basis for a declaratory action that was preemptive in nature before the foreclosure even started? Well, in my opinion, it absolutely should be, and I think that the Ivanova decision speaks directly to that. 
if you read the reasoning of the court while they go on and on to say we're not deciding that issue because it wasn't before them, um, their reasoning makes it clear that you don't have a right to foreclose unless, in fact, you are the beneficiary and holder of the note. Um, uh, so now we did have one decision out here in California, post-Ivanova, believe it or not, out of the same court that came down with the Sierrata decision that said, no, you still don't have a right pre-foreclosure. Um, and uh, I think what they're trying to justify is, again, they don't want to be inundated with turning um, uh, non-judicial foreclosures into effectively judicial foreclosures um, and saying that uh, we're, we're not going to look at all of these cases beforehand and decide that. I think that's going to change. Um, there was a case up before the Supreme Court uh, here in California on that issue. Unfortunately, rather than deciding it, they sent it back for further review by the Court of Appeal. I think we're going to get a different result from that Court of Appeal if they rationally consider what Ivanova says and, and what the Sierrata decisions say. I don't see how they rule otherwise. There's one very good decision out of a federal court here um, that 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 explains it in very simple terms. It's absolutely ridiculous to hold that you can't at least bring a declaratory relief action. It may not be a tort yet. Um, and, and here in California, uh, and I, I, I'm sure you do understand what it means to be a tort, but in a tort you can recover consequential damages, um, uh, things like pain and suffering, emotional distress, any of the harm they've caused you. Um, but uh, it's certainly uh, something that should be subject to declaratory relief in terms of uh, a declaration as to whether or not these parties do, in fact, have the right to foreclose. Uh, again, it's an interesting history in California. Uh, our our non-judicial foreclosure statute um, was actually enacted back uh, uh, during the Depression in response to issues they had with the judicial foreclosure system and to fix the abuses that were related to that. And it's been turned on its head now. Um, uh, it was once considered a pro-consumer statute, and now it's become a pro-lender statute. You know, I, I keep hearing this argument about we don't want to be inundated, which, A, I think is irrelevant because we're a, a nation of laws, and that's no reason to deny the application of our laws. But more than that, what do you think about this argument about you know that they would they would be inundated with litigation isn't it true that you know if you look at the inundation that the courts had with foreclosures brought by lenders and the number of borrowers who contested because they figured there's no point they're going to lose anyway the number of borrowers who, who contested meaningfully was around 2 or 3%. If Correct. you reverse if you reverse this and said, well, if they do start applying it broadly the way it should be, it's just applying the law, we're not talking about changing it, then wouldn't it also be true 
that there would be fewer foreclosures because they can't get them through or that they would bring the right parties and the right documents forward instead of what they're doing. I, I think you've hit it right on the point. I think that that's what I've been saying all along in front of these courts is, um, you know, you need to follow the law. They need to follow the law. And I don't understand how their failure to follow the law would justify you doing what you're doing, which is putting the burden on the homeowners. I still can't understand how they justified that. Uh, it, it simply never made any sense to me. It was turning basic concepts of law uh, regarding assignments and who owns what. I mean, it, it was turning ve- very many areas of law on its head, um, all for the purpose of preventing the homeowners from proceeding um, without any real explanation for it. Uh, again, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a believer in conspiracy theories, but uh, I think that that's right. just the mood in our, case, in our country. You know, in the past, I used to do a lot of uh, insurance bad faith work for plaintiffs also, and uh, the mood in this country changed. Uh, the courts started liking the insurance companies, not the, uh, not the consumers. And I guess things go in cycles. We're in a cycle right now where the, the, the courts don't like the consumers right now. Um, that's really what it comes down to. Yeah, it would appear that that's the case, and I think that uh, my feeling, just to interject a philosophical point or a political point, is that the um, treatment of consumers and workers, etc., as dispensable as somebody that you know you can throw under the bus has produced um uh, a society that is now in like you say a cycle uh we don't know where it's going to end up but the uh, uh the rise of Trump the rise of Sanders and so forth they they hit a nerve no, they and do. And and I, I think that the, the nerve they hit is uh, reminds me of when civil rights back in the 50s and 60s, I'm old enough to remember that, um, was was rising up. And the changes that happened and some of the un, unfortunate explosions that happened because these are, were groups of people who weren't being treated properly in accordance with our own constitution and our own laws. So I agree. what do you think? I, I'm waiting for the tide to turn. Um, I, I think it is going to turn. Uh, you know, in my, I've been practicing coming up as of December for 30 years. And in my 30 years of practice, um, uh, I've seen uh, both sides of it, and uh, I'm hoping it's been a long time. It's been since a, oh, the, since the mid '80s <laughs> that the tide has slowly been turning against consumers, and and I think it's reached reached the high point now, and people are finally saying, "Wait a minute here, we can't have that anymore. This is not right." We are being wronged, um, and I think that even the courts are starting to see that. I, I think, the, again, the Ivanovic decision is a, is a great example of that, and the court's saying, come on, you, you people are not being realistic here. Um, 
Uh, I thought that that case sent a great message to the other courts. Unfortunately, they don't seem to have heard that message, <laughs> given given some of the decisions that have come out since then. I I have hypothesized that the reason that even over twisted itself into a pretzel is, and and you see this in in other courts across the country, is that. It's one thing to attack the parties who walked into court and pulled off a fraudulent foreclosure. It's another thing to say that all these thousands of judges were wrong. Now, the U.S. Supreme Court had no problem doing that in Jesenowski, saying that you were all wrong. But as you go down, you know, uh, Tip O'Neill used to say that all politics is local. As you get more and more local, they it seems to me that the idea of having multiple reversals, uh, hundreds or thousands of them, uh, involved with uh, uh, hundreds or thousands of judges is something that our club, the legal profession, doesn't want to do. But they're perfectly okay with you suing for, on the same grounds, for damages. Now, I would agree. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I, I, I would agree. I think that uh, uh, the, even the California Supreme Court doesn't want to tell all of these appellate justices you were wrong. And, and, and some of the decisions, in my opinion, were, were absolutely ridiculous. Um, the initial decisions uh, were somewhat well-reasoned. Um, uh, for instance, I, I'm sure you may be familiar with the case out here, Gomes, where the court said, uh, okay, well, you can't just come in here and say they're the wrong person, but I don't know who it is. You have to allege some facts as to who actually does own your note. Um, and, and that made sense. But then subsequent courts took that ruling and twisted it to say, it doesn't matter who forecloses. You have no right to complain about it. Uh, and that didn't make sense. Um, and I think those courts should have been taught a lesson a long time ago. Unfortunately, they weren't. Um, and I think that they've been allowed to get away. And I personally, with it, I think that the Satterback decision is an example of that, of a court of appeal, some judges saying back to the Supreme Court, we don't care what you say. We're going to keep doing what we were doing. Yeah, I've seen that a lot. And uh, uh, it, it looks to me, looking towards the future, um, by the way, I think that the, uh, uh, the Gomes decision was half right, not completely right. The, I, I would uh, agree it was half <laughs> It was half right. Like uh, on Yom Kippur, I do a half-assed. Um, but the uh, in in the Gomes decision, the idea that the homeowner has to know something that has been intentionally withheld by the only people who have that information seems wrong to me. 
and again, I would agree 100% on that, and, and it's interesting because I think our California legislature out here tried to address that issue, and the courts right. just for that also, you know, uh, in enacting the Homeowners' Bill of Rights out here in California, um, the court, uh, the legislature made it clear that, uh, you do have to show the note. You know, the, the, the defense bar used to argue this is a show-me-the-note case, and uh, the courts would say, you don't have to come up with the note. Well, the legislature passed the Homeowners' Bill of Rights saying, yes, you do. Um, but believe it or not, I haven't seen a single court that says, yes, you do. Um, up until now, I'm sure that they're going to have to agree now that I'm entitled to the documents. But I was in front of many trial courts on foreclosure cases, uh, some trials related to unlawful detainers, related to foreclosure cases, where the courts have said, I'm not even entitled to see any of the documentation that shows how they claim to own this note. None of it. I, and I wasn't ever given any of it. Um, and I, I think the reason I'm given it was because it didn't exist. <laughs> if it existed, why not produce it, right? <laughs> you know, it, it sometimes it's hard for me to explain to clients that judges are just people. They're people who went to law school, and like most people, they don't remember everything they learned in law school. Um, I mean, the the whole issue of the note and possession of the note, possession uh, with an entitlement to enforce, a holder of the note, this is all clearly spelled out. It's been spelled out when we had the National Commercial Code, now the Uniform Commercial Code, um, that, you know, if you just have possession, I've, I've been in courts where I've seen uh, other lawyers argue that, said, you know, saying that as long as we have the note, uh, you can't stop us from enforcing it, and the judge agreed. Yeah, and well, that's argument. <laughs> I have to say that's a ridiculous argument, but I've seen it too. And and I uh uh I'm finding more and more that as I assist other lawyers around the country uh uh who are not trial lawyers like yourself uh that I have to bring them back down to the basics, you know. In order to have possession there has to be delivery of the note and that kind of thing. And there has to have been somewhere along the line a purchase of it, which now I'm pretty well assured and so are uh, many others, that there is no purchase of the note anywhere up or down the line because the originator never loaned the money to begin with. So that that also goes back to the fact that how can you sell the note multiple times if you give it to somebody? You know, if you actually have a record of selling it to somebody else, Um, you know. Well, if you're you're the only one that keeps records, you can do it forever. Yes. Uh, Yep. That's why. That's why they keep the records, right? So we're going to magically keep the records, and we're not going to show anybody. Uh, and that's why, in my opinion, they fight so hard to produce that information. They don't want to produce it because they know if they do, they're going to have big trouble. Right. I mean, they go to jail, don't they? Correct. Correct. So, so all right. Um, 
let's look at the future of foreclosure defense litigation. I have been writing recently that I think, as I have in the past, I, I think the issue of discovery, which trial lawyers understand the value of that, um, is going to be first and foremost for the very reason we were just t talking about. The people who actually have the proof of what you kn know to be true or what you're alleging to be true, the people who have that information are the only ones that have access to that information. And the only way you're going to get it or show the court that they don't have the goods is by aggressively pursuing discovery. I had a case uh, uh, fairly recently, I guess it was about a year ago, where in addition to the judge striking all of the affirmative defenses of the homeowner, he also struck uh, all of the discovery requests. Mm hmm Not surprising. And... Uh I mean, here we were, naked in the wind, making allegations that we knew were true. Right. And because we were blocked, we were unable to prosecute the case properly. What was interesting is that, and this is a, a side note that the people may be interested in, uh, I concluded that the reason that the judge came down so hard is that for some reason... He didn't like me. So I told my client, let's get another lawyer in here. And we did. And ultimately, uh, the case ended up being dismissed because the new lawyer was pressing discovery, the same discovery I was pressing. So sometimes the, the, the lesson there is that sometimes you got got to be aware of what's happening in a particular court and whether you're getting traction or, for some reason, uh, you hit a nerve with the judge that you don't even know what it's about, and it's time to take a step back and let somebody else take over. I I would agree. I think you know, as a trial lawyer, you need to you need to be aware of when you're just setting the judge off. And unfortunately, I see a lot of improper people. You know, people representing themselves go into court, and they 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 are going to have success in the case, and they push it too far. They go too far. They make the judge mad at them. And the minute you do that, uh, particularly in a trial court, you're in some big trouble if you do that. At the same time, I'm a full advocate for uh, never giving up or giving in uh, as an attorney. Um, um, I, I know what the law is, and, and I'm not going to stop arguing on the behest of my client. Maybe I need to get somebody else in there, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise the arguments that I know are correct and proper um, before the court, and I'm not going to back down from, from what a judge thinks. I find that most of the judges don't understand this area of the law at all. Um, I, I think uh, my, my impression has always been there's been a meeting among the civil judges in various courts, and they have a little discussion on how they're going to rule, and they all just rule that way with no idea why they're doing it. I don't think they're handling these cases individually. Well, I know that's true. I mean, I have friends who are judges, and I, I know for a fact that that's true. You know, the... Uh, uh, the other thing, uh, we just have a few minutes here, 
uh, that I just wanted to bring up with somebody like you, you, you probably have had the same experience that I have, which is a pro se litigant has gone whatever distance they could, or somebody wants to switch lawyers because their present lawyer is not that experienced in trial work. And I refer to that area of practice as legal proctology, trying to undo the mess that was done before, which frequently takes more time than prosecuting the case. Exactly. And I'm wondering, I, I, I know you've had the same experience. Yeah, I have. My, my experience is when I step in for somebody after they've already done it, um, it's more of undoing what they've done, uh, changing the arguments, uh, limiting the arguments to ones that will win, um, and uh, knowing your court. And, you know, if you're an improper or if you're someone who doesn't practice in this area, then you don't know what's going to win and what's not going to win. And, uh, you know, the, the throwing mud against the wall uh, method of litigating uh, is usually not a good idea. I've had some, some clients come in with some pretty interesting um, arguments that they pulled off of the Internet, and I want to say, well, sounds great, but there's no court that's going to accept it, and ultimately you're going to hurt your own case by doing that, uh, whatever it is they're doing. And uh, you have a good argument, and here it is. And that's what you should be arguing, um, not throwing mud against the wall. Right. The the uh, uh, Many of the homeowners think that the more arguments they have, the better and stronger their case, when in fact it is exactly the opposite. If you've got 50 ideas on how you might be able to win your case, you need to pick two and go with it. I would and, agree. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, uh, some of the worst situations I've gotten myself into as a lawyer or as a consultant have been those where this person has uh, filed a 200-page complaint with <laughs> 85 causes of action based anywhere from uh, what they pulled off a conspiracy theory site to anything else that they heard of. And exactly. you know, undoing that mess is is quite an effort, which results in the increase in the amount we have to charge because we have to do that work too. Exactly. So, we need to fix the problems that have already been created. Um, I, I think you're far better off to get a lawyer that's experienced in this area from the get-go um, uh, pay the fees, uh, and I'm, I know it hurts. Uh, I, I don't like paying lawyers if I need a lawyer myself, um, but I certainly would never represent myself. I'll, I'll say that much, and I don't think homeowners should um, be representing themselves in these, in these cases. I just think it's a mistake. I think that their case doesn't get taken seriously, and I think they generally tend to do more harm than good to themselves uh, and they finally and, and most judges are good they'll keep telling people you need a lawyer you need a lawyer right. you need a lawyer right. uh, and finally by the time they get a lawyer the case has already been painted particularly in front right. of the judge well Stephen thank you for appearing on the show Stephen Lopez his number in San Diego is 858-682-9666 
Give him a call. As you have heard, he is an experienced trial attorney. Stephen, thanks for appearing on the show. Thank you, Neil. It was a pleasure. Have a good day. You too. And we'll be back next week with more information for everyone. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.